So it's been a few weeks since we were in Matthew chapter 9, but the last thing we covered was the, the, the story of Levi, the story of Matthew, the writer of the book. And if you remember, he, he is telling a story to Jewish people from a Jewish perspective. The least guy that you would think would be doing this, Matthew the tax collector, God says, Matthew, follow me, and he gets up and he starts following him. And we looked at that pretty extensively a couple of weeks ago. But as he lays out his story, remember, he starts off with his lineage, his, his genealogical qualifications. Then he moves from that into his uh, supernatural qualifications, the fact that he was prophesied and he fulfilled, he had a divine birth, he fulfilled those prophecies. He had many divine confirmations of prophecies fulfilled around his birth in early years. And then... He uh, lays out his, uh, his qualification of the affirmation of the Father when God said, this is my son, when he was baptized. Then he had his spiritual qualifications laid out when he goes into the desert and he's uh, tested by Satan and he defeats Satan out in the desert. And then he goes up on the mountain in Ma uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He gives the uh, Mount of Beatitudes teaching. Um, he, he destroys the Pharisees up there and he, he lays out, Matthew's laying out his theological qualifications. And then at the end of that, in chapters 8 and 9, remember there's three sets of three miracles. And at the end of each set of miracles, he deals with an issue of discipleship. And he, the first miracle, you remember he cleansed a leper. Now what was really neat on this trip to Israel is when we were there, we actually, I talked about this. I don't know if you remember when we, we taught on that in here, but in the temple courts, they have a court of cleansed lepers or a court of lepers. And that court was for a Jewish person who had leprosy who had been cleansed. And there had never been one who had been cleansed until Jesus appeared. And that's why Jesus said, hey, go to the temple. Don't go anywhere else. Go to the temple. Why? Because they had been waiting. The rabbis had been arguing about the fact that when, when is the Messiah going to heal a leper? That was going to be the mark. And that's why Jesus told him, go to the temple. Don't go anywhere, but go to the temple. And so the next uh, miracle he did was he healed the centurion's <coughs> child servant. You remember that? And the, the centurion uh, sent some Jewish elders, if you remember, and they went to him. They said, hey, please come and do this for him. He's been kind to us. He built our synagogue. Do you remember that? Remember talking about that? And he said, listen, you don't even have to come. Just speak it and it will happen. And Jesus said, I haven't seen such a great faith in all of Israel. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law and they brought other people. And then his first discourse on discipleship, when a, a teacher comes up and says, hey, I'll follow you anywhere. And he says, no, you won't follow me anywhere because it's going to be hard. And he, he qualifies the followership. And a guy says, hey, let me go bury my dad. He goes, no, let the dead bury your, the dead. And then another guy says, well, hey, I want to go and say goodbye. And he says, you're not fit if you put your hands to the plow and you, you turn around and look back. So he teaches on discipleship. And then we move into the next series of miracles that Matthew brings up. And the first one is they're out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm blows up. And while we were there, a storm actually kind of blew up, not on us, but you could see it off in the distance on another shore. And it blew up really quick. And so Jesus just goes, shh. And it calmed. And Matthew was saying he's Lord over the physical. He's Lord over the material world. And then he moves from there into going to heal some uh, demon-possessed men who had the strength to break shackles. 
They were incredibly strong and they were demon-possessed and Jesus told the demons to leave. They flew, they flew away out of the man, went into the pigs, killed the pigs. And you remember it showed there that he, had, he was Lord over the supernatural. And then after that, there's a paralytic. He comes back to Capernaum and they let a paralytic guy down and he says, your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed, but your sins are forgiven. And he makes this big statement about his authority over sin. So he's Lord over sin and the consequences of sin. And then after that is when we went into Matthew. He goes into, and, and what does Matthew say? What does Matthew's story really tell us about discipleship? Who chooses disciples? The disciples didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. And when he chose Matthew, he chose somebody that nobody in that group would have chose. Because he said, I want you. And Matthew started following him right away. And Matthew followed him. And, and now we go into this last triplet. And what we're seeing here is, really, we see a miracle within a miracle, and then two other miracles. But the first miracle that he's really dealing with is showing that he's Lord over death. Think about death for a second. In the last two days, I've visited four people that are terminal, and in, uh, three of them are in hospice already. Three people in the last two days. While I was in Israel, the third day there, Riad's mother died unexpectedly, our guide. And he came and he said, can I talk to you? I walked out and he collapsed in tears in my arms. He was really close to his mother and it was unexpected. And he said, okay, I can go. And he buried her. She, he got the word she died at 11 o'clock and by 6 p.m. she was buried. That's the way they do it. And then they have three days of people coming by and paying their respects. But, but he was crushed. And in him, my heart broke. I cried with him because it, it was painful. Death is painful. And I think if we're really honest, it is the one thing that all of us in the back of our minds, we may not think about it on a daily basis, but if you're put in a position of peril, either by somebody almost hitting you in a car, or you were on a plane and all of a sudden it got really bumpy and the pilot goes, we're going through some really bad air. All of us would think about that because it's the one thing that none of us can recover from. I mean, once you go there, you're, it's, it's gone. And the older we get, the closer we get to it. I remember when I was in the uh, Marine Corps, or I got out of the Marine Corps and got in the FBI, I thought I wouldn't live past 40. I just had this in my mind, and it was a thing that I wrestled with when I was going to Russia. I just thought, I'm going to die in a plane crash. I'm going to die in a wreck over there. I just did not think, and Lori, if you ask her today, she would tell you, yeah, because we used to talk about it all the time, and I just said, I don't think I'll live to see 40. I knew if God wanted me, he would take me, because when I was in that bird strike, if the bird would have been three inches over, it would have killed me instantly. But it was that far from taking my life. Three inches. So I knew then that I was immortal till God wanted me. It really, that, that, that's, the, that's what I took away from that. But we struggle with this concept of death and just going to these people who were in hospice and praying for them. It just reminded me, it is a painful consequence of sin.
When the garden happened, when sin happened in the garden, it was like a big snowball rolling with all the consequences. And you think of every evil deed, everything where somebody's murdered somebody, or we suffer through incredibly agonizing deaths. It's, it's all a result of sin. And Jesus is Lord over that. And what Matthew's bringing out here in this is He is Lord over death. And Jesus changes the phraseology and the mindset that He gives an analogy of sleep here in this passage that we're going to look at to say that death is temporary. Death for you and I as believers, and even for unbelievers, death is only a temporary passing to an eternal place. And for most of us, if we're really honest, it's hard for us to get our heads around that and live like that. We know it. We acknowledge it. But to really live like that, it, it requires a lot of the Lord living through us and us being open to really living like that. And I, I, think, I think one thing that I've seen in my own life and I see in the lives of survivors, people who almost died, who came very, very close to dying, is they have an appreciation for life and a zest for life because they know they almost died. You know what I'm saying? It, you just, it's like, and I, I don't know how to explain it. I think about what happened to me a lot and I was that close. And I'm just very grateful that because I think about what wouldn't be here. Seven of my eight children wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have them. I wouldn't have three grandchildren that I have right now. So all these things, but God is weaving a thread through our life. And we don't have to fear death. And why Matthew is putting this in here is he wants us to know we don't have to fear death anymore. It has been defeated. Jesus is the only leader in human history to defeat death. Buddha was buried and you can see his tomb. Muhammad was buried, you can see his tomb. Confucius was buried, you can see his tomb. You can see probably DNA from it there. But you can't find the DNA of Jesus. There's no body. There's no body. And so Matthew is bringing out, this is messianic because there was a prophecy back in Daniel chapter 12 about death not being permanent. The Messiah was going to deliver us from death. And so let's look at this passage, Matthew 9, 18 through 34. Actually, we're going to go through the whole, we're going to look at those last two miracles too. Because the first miracle is really, uh, when the woman's healed of blood, it's a miracle within a miracle, dealing, I think, with the same issue. And I'm going to show you that in a second. But let's look at it, Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men following him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away, and they spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So, in this passage, you see three miracles, and really one within a miracle, but they, three issues are dealt with. Death, the blind, and the mute. The hemorrhaging woman was a spiritual death. The hemorrhaging woman was not allowed to go into the synagogue. The hemorrhaging woman was not allowed to go into the temple. The hemorrhaging woman couldn't be touched by anybody. So for 12 years, she walked around like a zombie. She was spiritually cut off. And for a Jewish person, that was like death. To be spiritually cut off from the synagogue and the temple meant that your sins weren't paid for. It meant that you couldn't be in connection with God. They were cut off. So you have a spiritual death there within the physical death of that little girl. And then you have the blind men that are healed and you have the, um, the mute. So in this passage, Matthew's laying out that God calls you and I to follow a king. And one of the things we notice about Jesus is this king is accessible. He calls us to follow a king who is accessible and he cares. Now, I want you to think about your idea of a king, what that means to you. Think about every king of Israel that you might have read about. Think about every king in human history in England, over in France. Think about all the kings you know. Were they accessible? Were kings accessible people? Could your everyday person just walk up to a king? They couldn't. The kings always had bodyguards. They always had people around them. They always had protectors to keep them away. The emperors, whether they were emperors in Rome, emperors in Greece, the Babylonians, they had people around them to protect them. Not Jesus, not the king of kings. The king of kings was accessible and he cared about people. And he cared. here's what's great. He cared about the desperate and the needy. He cared enough to be accessible to them, to have them around him. These people came up to him. He comes back, and you've got to remember, it is crowded. Over in the Mark account and the Luke account, they talk about multitudes of people, thousands of people. Now listen, when we were in Israel, there were more people than have ever been there when I've been over there. They called it the Trump effect is what they said. They said because Trump is so positive on Israel, they've had more guests this year than they've had in the last two years. 
All these people are going over there now. And so it was hustle and bustle. And it's funny because we were fighting through crowds. I mean, you know how people, have you ever been in a mob and see what it's like? I mean, you go to Disney World, you know what it's, I'm talking about. You're going through the mob and you're, you're getting bumped. People are just not even caring that you're there and they're bumping through you. And you look over at them and they got a Christian t-shirt, Christian name tag on. You're going, what's the deal? I mean, you're here on a Christian tour, man. Why are you acting like that? And then I'm convicted about my own attitude because I'm mad at them because they just got in front of me. But in a mob mentality, it, it creates a, a psychology in it, doesn't it? I mean, even on the roads, when you're very, very in heavy, heavy, heavy traffic and, you, and somebody cuts you off, you get angry really quick. Or if you see an opening, you go, it's like you're in a race trying to get to someplace so you can stop at the light to, you know, you're still... You're racing, and, and I mean, you'll put your blinker on and people are coming up behind you and the light's red, but they won't let you go over it knowing you want to make a turn. And it's because they don't want you to get in front of them. It's that kind of mentality. That's what's going on here. And so as this is happening, this ruler of the synagogue, it says in one of the accounts, the ruler of the synagogue, you know where the synagogue is? It's the synagogue in Capernaum. It's the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus spent 90% of his time. And so this ruler has a child who's 12 years old and probably older than that who's dying. The Mark account and the Luke account say that she is dying in the, in the continuing sense. And in one, one of those accounts, somebody comes to Jesus and says, don't bother the teacher, or comes to the guy and says, don't bother the teacher anymore, she's died. Matthew condenses it down. All he's letting us know is that this guy has a daughter who's died. All right, he's not giving us all the details. If you want details, go to Mark or Luke. They, they tend to be much more detailed on this account. But Matthew's not focused on that. Remember what he's doing? He's trying to show that he's God over death. So he just cuts through that. But if you really want to know that story, go back and look there because what happens is he comes up and, and he's going to Jesus because she is dying. So imagine what he's going through in his mind. He's, he's desperate. There's a crowd and he's coming to Jesus in this crowd because he wants Jesus to come heal his daughter. And a guy comes up and says, don't bother him anymore, she's dead. Now, I want you to notice something about this guy. If you go back to the first verse in verse 18, it says he knelt before him. You know what that word knelt is? It's the word proskuneo in Greek. And it's the word that I shared with you guys that the magi, when they knelt before Jesus, and it means to kiss, to kneel and kiss the feet of. And it usually applies to deity. So here's a ruler of the synagogue. This is not a Pharisee. This is not a scribe. This is, not a, uh, uh, this is not a Pharisee. He's a ruler. In the synagogues, the synagogues were in the, the, the areas where that's where the teaching took place. So they would have a copy of the Torah in there, the law, and they had elders that ruled that place. And one guy would be the ruling elder, and it was his responsibility to choose who was going to read the Scripture that day and then to kind of uh, orchestrate the reading and the prayer and kind of lead that time to make sure everything went the way it should. This guy was that ruler of the Capernaum synagogue. And he goes against the Pharisees. He goes against the scribes because they're already angry at Jesus. And he goes against them. Why? What drives him? What drives him to Jesus? 
What's going on with it? What's going on in his life right now? His daughter's dying. He's a man who loves his daughter. And his daughter just hit the prime because she's, she's a woman. Twelve years in one day makes you a woman in the Jewish culture. You can be married at twelve years in one day. And so his daughter just hit marrying age and she's dying. And he's desperate. But he comes in faith, right? I mean, if, if he hadn't had faith, he wouldn't have come. If he didn't have faith, he wouldn't bow down to Jesus. What is it that drove him to that? Well, the thing, I, I don't want you to miss this, so that Jesus is accessible. We're going to talk about why he came in a second. But don't miss the fact that he's accessible. But look at the contrast of what's going on. Because as this is happening, this guy's coming, there's a woman who's bleeding, who's an outcast. Who probably keeps her out of the Capernaum synagogue? This guy. Think about this contrast that's going on. You've got this guy over here who's the ruler of the synagogue. You've got this woman over here who's an outcast. She can't get into the synagogue. She's bleeding. She's spent all her money, we know by other accounts. She's lonely. She's not been touched in 12 years. Imagine for a second for you, no handshake, no hug, no affection from anybody. When people see you, they walk the other way. You're not allowed to go and worship. You can't hear the law of God. You can't hear God's words. It would be very, very discouraging and lonely. But what do you think this ruler over here thinks when Jesus gets involved in a conversation with this woman? See, for us, we see it as a few-minute conversation. It was much longer. It was long enough for him to be going to Jesus when his daughter was alive and his daughter died. So Jesus has an encounter with this woman. What do you think the ruler of the, Jairus is his name? We know from the other accounts. What do you think Jairus was going through in his brain? As Jesus is kind of dilly-dallying with this woman. You think he was a little upset? You think he was frustrated? You think he was saying, come on, Jesus, let's go. Let's go, my daughter, my daughter over here. Sure he was. But Jesus never hurried. He, he, it's almost like, you know what happened when uh, he, was, he was with the disciples and they go, hey, Lazarus is sick. He's sick, Jesus. And he stayed there. Why? He had to stay there till he died. And he says, why? I'm glad so that you can see the glory of God revealed. You see, Jesus had an unfolding plan that the ruler, Jairus, didn't know about. He was going to do something. Jairus was going to see something that very few people got to see. He was going to personally experience a resurrection. I mean, for us, that, we can't even get our heads around that. We read about it. But we, we can't imagine the anguish of having a dead relative in front of us that we dearly love and then watching somebody speak to them and then come back alive. He was going to get to experience, but he didn't know that at this time. And so, Jesus, don't miss the fact He's accessible to Him, the religious leader over here, but also to the outcast, to the desperate, to the person of influence, to the person who knows nobody. 
and nobody wants to know him. But not only is he accessible, he's approachable. And there's a difference between accessibility and approachability. You see, they could have been around him and he could have rejected their, their, their desires when they came up to him and talked to him. But he was approachable. He wasn't just accessible around them. And by the way, a lot of our shepherds today, they aren't accessible. They aren't accessible at all. And, and, and there's a teaching point there. If we are to be like our Master, that's a building block of discipleship, right? Remember community? The Word and what? To be like the Master. Why aren't we accessible today? Why aren't we accessible? Jesus, the King of kings, was accessible and approachable because they came up to Him. And look, you know what? He values... He shows by being accessible and, uh, and approachable. He shows us things. One, He shows us that He values worship over work. In other words, when this guy comes up, this ruler of the synagogue comes up to Him and bows down before Him, He's worshiping Him, right? Jesus, Jesus went with Him. Jesus went with Him. We see worship there. This woman in her mind, she goes up, oh, if I could just touch Him. That she knew there was something special about Jesus. In fact, you know what Jesus called her? He called her daughter. He doesn't call any other woman in the New Testament daughter. Think about that for a second. He called her daughter. A term of endearment and family. In Psalm 147, it's a litany in verses 1 through 11 of praise. I'm not going to go there for time, but it's just a praise and praise and praise. I will read one verse from there, Psalm 147, that says it's, it's praise and praise as all these verses are, are talking about what God does and how awesome He is. It says in verse 6, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but he takes pleasure in those who fear him. God loves worship. The reason that missions exist according to John Piper is because worship doesn't. We are to go and reflect the glory of God so there's worshipers. Well, he's also approachable and values community community over comfort. What do I mean by that? Well, what does he do with a guy? The guy comes up to him and says, come with me. What does he do? He doesn't go, hey, you know what? I'd really like to go, but i got something else pressing over here with the disciples. He goes with him. He goes with him. The woman comes up and touches him, a thing that would defile any other person. But instead of being offended, you know what he does? He turns around and cares about her spiritual healing as much as he does her physical healing. And he, he has a relational moment with her. He always valued community. And I thought about something this year, Chuck, that I hadn't thought about. When Jesus was walking from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's over 100 miles. Six to seven day journey with the disciples. Yeah, it's not easy. Think about all the conversations they would have had going and coming. And do you know what? 
I want you to think of, of a time where you were listening to a message and you were very deeply convicted and it felt like you were in a car wreck. You, know, you ever had that moment where, you're, where you're, you're, you're listening to God's Word be preached and you're so convicted that it's a traumatic event for you almost because you think about your life and you think about how you're not following God the way you should. The disciples had that two or three times a day walking with Him. So He valued community and then He also valued faith over fear. Mark chapter 5, the Mark account of this. You know what? When they come up and they tell the guy, uh, they said, hey listen, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, don't fear, believe. Don't fear, believe. Jesus always valued faith over fear. He was accessible. He was approachable. God calls us to follow a King who is all-powerful. And He rules over spiritual death and physical death. This woman, when she comes up and touches Him, this is really important if you, you think about it. When she touched Him, in all three accounts, it says the issue of blood stopped when she touched Him. So she was physically healed. She was socially healed at that point. With no issue of blood, she could go into the synagogue. She could go into the temple. But she wasn't spiritually healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? Now in the other accounts, the disciples goes, are you crazy? How, how do you know? There's a, everybody's touching you. But see, Jesus could tell the difference between the touch of a person in the family of faith and just a brush up by somebody who could care less who he was. And at that moment, he turned to her and it says she became afraid. Power went through Jesus. Do you realize that when Jesus, when God chose to heal this woman through Jesus, it happened apart from Jesus doing it? Do you realize that? It was not Jesus saying you're healed. God, the woman touched his garment, he was healed. God heals, he heals. And he, he healed through Jesus at that moment without Jesus even, other than Jesus knowing power went out from him. And so Jesus turns to her and says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. He cared about her spiritual healing. He is all powerful. He wanted her not to be spiritually dead anymore. And right after that, he goes with a guy to the house. And when they came to the house, if you look, there were flute players. They were, they were wailing. See, their funerals were not like our funerals. Their funerals were very different. They would Well, there were three things they would do at a funeral. I, I, I think I can remember two of them. One of them is they would tear their clothes. We wear our best clothes to a funeral. They go and get their old clothes because they know they're going to tear them. There were 30 to 30, I don't know, almost 40 rules of how you were to tear your clothes at a funeral. That's how much they made that a part of it. The second thing they would do is they would hire professional mourners, people that will wail and come and cry, almost like to prime the pump to get people to be upset. And then they would hire flute players and people to come and play very, very sad music. That's what was going on already when they were going to the house. Jesus comes in and He says, hey, the girl's not dead. And they laughed at Him. They went from mourning to laughing at Him. 
And, and, and so Jesus says, get out! That's what He says in this. And it wasn't just like, hey, get out. It was like, get out! And He only took Peter, James, and John. It's the first time that He separates these three from out all the others and takes them with Him. And the mother and the father went in there with Him. And He gets over the girl and He says, Talitha come, which is Aramaic for rise. And she rose. It says her spirit came back in her. Her spirit had departed. It was just a shell. It was what we see every time we go to a funeral. If you see an open casket, you see a shell. You don't see the person. Their spirit's gone. In this case, it was a shell and the spirit came back into the body. And the little girl got up. And you know what Jesus said? He's so loving. He says, get her something to eat. She needs to eat. But there was another reason he told her to get something to eat. He wanted them to know this was not some apparition. You remember what he did to show the disciples he wasn't a ghost? He said, hey, he was eating, give me some food. I want you to see that this is... I'm, I'm, I'm human. I'm, I'm, I'm just like I was. Except better. And, and so we see that he's all-powerful over the physical and the spiritual. Then the last thing, you, you see these last two guys, this blind man and this uh, mute. And you go, why is that there? It seems to me like the crescendo would be on Jesus raising this girl from the dead, right? I mean, that is the greatest thing that you could do, isn't it, Brian? To raise somebody from the dead? But it's just almost like two big exclamation points <laughs> on the messianic connection between Jesus and the Messianic prophecies. You know why? Over in Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35, there's prophecies there about the deaf and the mute and the blind. That the Messiah is going to heal those people. So those, it's like two big exclamation points. And when you stop and think about it, when somebody's blind, aren't their eyes dead? If somebody's blind, there's something dead in the eye that keeps them from seeing, right? So there has to be a resurrection or a creation of an eye there. There has to be something created for them to be able to see. When somebody's a mute, they couldn't speak. It's a messianic prophecy fulfilled. And it's almost like Matthew going, this is the Messiah. And it you know, makes me think of John. Remember in John... Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 7, where John the Baptist, he's sitting in prison and he's, he's, he's just discouraged. And he sends some guys and they go to Jesus and they say, are you the one? Or, I mean, are you the one? Are we supposed to look for somebody else? Because John's thinking, hey, if you're the one, why am I in jail here? If you're the one, why am I about to get my head chopped off? And I think we do the same things. When we go through difficult times, we look and we go, God, I need you to show me that you're the one because if you're the one, why am I having to do all this? I mean, I do all the right things. I go to church. I, I give my money. I read my Bible. I love you. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. Not everybody's going to be healed. It doesn't make Him less the Messiah. The word back in um, here where it says the woman was made well, when Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well, that made you word is the word sozo. 
And sozo is a, is a, is a gospel word. It's a, it's a salvation word. Over in Luke chapter 7, we looked at that uh, a couple of weeks ago where the lady washes Jesus' feet and Jesus goes, go, your faith has saved you. Same word, sozo. Same word there. To save. It really means to save. Also in Mark 10, when the Mark 10 is an account of Jesus going into Jericho and blind men are going, hey Jesus, son of David, they're using the messianic title, have mercy upon me. Have mercy. And Jesus goes, what do you want me to do for you? He goes, I want to see. I want to heal, be healed. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has what made you well. So so again. Not just the eyes, but the soul. Jesus said, don't fear the guy who can kill the body. Fear the guy who can cast your soul into hell for eternity. And what Matthew's saying here is, Jesus has the authority to bring healing to our soul. And that's what He wants to do. He's Lord over the physical world, the supernatural world. He's Lord over sin and He's Lord over death, both spiritual and physical. Now, I told you I was going to talk to you about a threat. About the guy. What drove the guy to Jesus? What drove the ruler of the synagogue to Jesus? I was on this trip and I was really encouraged because there was a thread of redemption woven through several people that went on this particular trip. One of them was a guy I flew with in the Marine Corps. He was a guy that back in 1990, I was going through evangelism explosion as a trainer to learn how to train people and how to share the gospel. And one of the exercises, we had to list three people that we thought would never trust Christ and commit to start praying for them. Two of those three people came to Christ on my list. One of those guys was on this trip to Israel with me. He was a guy, he was number two on my list never to come to Christ. He was hard. And yet, God brought him into the kingdom. And I got to share that story with all these people sitting around watching, thinking about the threat of redemption. Now he has three beautiful children that love the Lord who are married, and they're going to raise children that love the Lord. There's a thread that God is weaving through each one of our lives. Now, this ruler of the synagogue, where was he a ruler of again? I told you. Capernaum. Capernaum. If you go back to chapter 8, there's a centurion in Capernaum. And it says that he had a servant who was sick, a child servant that he loved and valued. And it said that people went from representing him to Jesus. Who went? Elders. Elders from Capernaum. And they said, Jesus, do this for him. He loves our people. He built our synagogue. Elders from the synagogue at Capernaum. This guy might have gone then on the centurion's behalf. If he wasn't one of the elders that went, he certainly was one of the elders that knew the elders that went because he was the ruler. And what did Jesus do? He said it and that centurion's servant was healed instantly. And he certainly would have known that. And God weaves His thread through these stories so often we don't even see the connection. This wasn't some isolated incident. This ruler of the synagogue was going and God had already demonstrated who He was to this guy. Some people will see the signs. 
but the skeptics will always seek the signs. When I was coming back on the plane, I shared for an hour and a half with a uh, Hasidic Jew, a young guy in his late 30s. And boy, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation like this in all the years I've shared the gospel. 20 to 30 times in our conversation, he told me how smart he was and told me how much he knew because he stuttered, studied under this uh, rabbi named Rambam. That's a shortened name for the guy. But in this conversation, he kept telling me, and it was funny because I really felt a little intimidated, to be honest with you, because he's, he's throwing out all this Jewish history stuff and just throwing it in there, questioning me about my stuff as I shared my testimony with him. And I just started praying, Lord, I feel so overwhelmed right now to be able to share with this guy. And I want to be able to share with him. Help me. And I'm just praying this as I'm talking to him. Because I'd already shared my testimony with him. And I kept trying to share the gospel, but he'd cut me off every time. He would never let me get there. He was telling me how smart he was. Uh, and so I, I just sat there and I listened. And I said, and then he said something. He talked to me about the Feast of Booths. And, he, and I said, you mean the Feast of Tabernacles? And he said, yeah, Tabernacles. He said, we just went there. We went to Jerusalem. That's why we were there. We were celebrating that. Because they celebrate all the feasts still. The Hasidic Jews do. And I said, can I ask you a question? Do you guys still do uh, the goblet of water from the pool of Siloam up through the temple and you pour it out on the temple? And he goes, What? I said, do you still, you know, it, it, the, the priest used to take the goblet of water and he every day of the Feast of Booths, they would do that. And the last day, they would march around it seven times. And he was embarrassed. He goes, oh, that's, that's just some tradition. I don't know about that. You know, it just, I could tell it bothered him, oh, that I was saying something to him. And I'm telling you, it just popped into my head. And, and, and I said, do you guys still sacrifice? Well, no, we haven't sacrificed since the, since the temple was destroyed. I said, oh, you mean in AD 70? Yeah, he goes, yeah. And I said, so what do you do with sin? How, how do you cover your sin for the year? I mean, how do, you, how do you walk around with all that guilt? What do you do with it? He didn't talk anymore after that. It was sad. And I prayed for him. I gave him my card and I told him I'd love to visit with him and talk to him. But I thought about the Jewish leaders in John chapter 7 and John chapter 12 that all these signs Jesus did and they said, show us a sign after He'd already done them. Don't miss the threads that God brings into your life. He brings these threads to, to tie us together to use us for His glory. And sometimes I think we can be like this guy. We keep looking for things that we want to see instead of the things God brings into us. This ruler of the synagogue saw the thread. The hemorrhaging woman saw the thread. Jesus did a lot of miracles in Capernaum, but you know what's in Capernaum today? Ruins. You know what's in Chorazin today? Ruins. Bethsaida today? Ruins. Why? Because Jesus cursed them. He said, if the miracles done in you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Woe you, Capernaum. You think you're much better if the miracles done in you, Sodom. If, if Sodom, if they were done in Sodom, they would have repented and it would still be standing. 
He placed a curse on all three of those cities, and they're nothing but ruins today. And Capernaum's a beautiful place, isn't it, Chuck? Right on the water. Nothing built there. Nothing. Because Jesus cursed it. Don't, don't keep looking for signs. See the signs that he brings. Bow your heads for a second. Just think in your own life. If he's accessible, are we taking advantage of his accessibility by spending time with him? Second question is, are we accessible? How do we approach him? Are we worshipful? Do we want to be in community with him? Do we approach him in faith or fear? Do we trust that he's all-powerful? Do we trust that he's the Messiah?